This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi. My name is John Torpy. I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to Inter International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we examine the global effort to address climate change and how the new administration plans to participate in that effort. In order to explore this topic. We're fortunate to have with us today Michael Oppenheimer, the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs at Princeton University. He's the director of the Center for Policy Research on Energy and the Environment and faculty associate of the Atmospheric and Ocean Sciences Program and the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. Oppenheimer joined the Princeton faculty after more than two decades with the Environmental Defense Fund, where he served as chief scientist and manager of the Climate and Air Program. He's a longtime participant in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Thank you so much for being with us today, Michael Oppenheimer. Well, thank you, John, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. So, let me start with a question about the new administration. One of the first actions taken by President Biden was to reverse Donald Trump's decision to leave the Paris Climate Accords and to rejoin that effort. Could you describe for us what is involved in the Paris Climate Accords and what they're designed to achieve? Uh, sure. Uh, first, let me say, as someone who's worked on the climate issue and was involved uh, in the activities that led up to the negotiations that ultimately, uh, decades later, produced the Paris Accords, that it's a very welcome uh, announcement on the, the new administration's part. In order to explain the Paris Accords, let me go back in time and tell everybody sort of where they came from. The climate issue first became uh, an, a, an issue of public concern in the late 1980s uh, when scientists were uh, where a consensus was beginning to emerge among scientists that this was a serious issue. It was going to only grow over time and not go away. That ultimately, if the emissions of the gases that were apparently causing climate change, the greenhouse gases were not controlled, that the situation uh, would eventually get out of hand. Human beings would simply not be able to catch up with the rate of climate change so that it was a problem that required getting ahead of and that led to a call by scientists going as far back as the mid-1980s for what's called a framework convention, which is essentially an international treaty 
which gets countries on board to cooperating in the reduction of the emissions that cause the problem, primarily uh, carbon dioxide from the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas, and uh, from deforestation, which primarily occurs in the tropics. The re- uh, the reason why an international agreement is necessary in this case is that no one country, no matter how large its emissions, could solve the problem alone. U.S. emissions of carbon dioxide used to be the largest in the world. Now they're China's, but even China uh, only emits uh, a little more than a quarter of global emissions. And even if you took China's emissions out of the picture, you one would still have a very large uh, incipient climate change. And things would eventually, again, get out of control if the other countries didn't act. So what's needed in that case is for countries to get together and cooperate and see, and see that no country is what's called free riding, that is letting all the other countries carry the water for them. So this, and I, I could go into some detail about the impacts of climate change, but I think we're all familiar with them now by having watched uh, episodes like the wildfires in California, which were exacerbated by climate change, like the changes in the intensity of hurricanes, which see more and more category four and five hurricanes strike the U.S. Again, one of the predictions of the uh, theories that underlie underlie climate change, Uh, changes in extreme heat so that in many areas, though we get some sharp cold spells sometimes, winter overall isn't as intense uh, or as long-lasting at most places in the Northern Hemisphere because there's been a general warming, for instance, and summers are getting more and more unbearable and more people uh, worldwide are dying of heat-related uh, uh, sickness, basically. So this is a problem not only that is predicted to come on, but has begun already and is already exo- uh, extorting a large cost to people and to societies in terms of lives and property. And in the U.S., one of the biggest impacts is the effect of sea level rise. Sea level rise happens under climate change because of all the ice melting around Earth and because fluids like ocean water expand when they're heated. That's, those effects are conspiring together to t- eat away parts of the coast and to make flood levels during storms like hurricanes considerably higher than they used to be. So that's the, that's the background. So recognizing that this is what was in offing, countries did get together in the early 1990s to negotiate an agreement called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. UN, because it was done under the United Nations, Framework Convention, meaning that countries sort of get together to agree on the outlines of what they'll do in the future, but without specific binding commitments to, say, reduce their emissions of carbon dioxide by a certain amount by a certain time. Uh, But that framework convention didn't generate much voluntary action. So the countries got together again in 1997 to negotiate a document called the Kyoto Protocol, which had binding commitments for countries like the U.S., the so-called northern or industrialized countries, to reduce their emissions by certain particular amounts uh, by the period between 2008 and 2012. Again, it was, you know, um, 
15 years in the future at that point. So they had plenty of time to do it and uh, to therefore start, but be nowhere near finishing the job of slowing climate change and eventually stabilizing the climate. Well, that didn't work out so well either. Uh, One of the problems with the Kyoto Protocol is that the developing countries like China, whose emissions were starting to be quite substantial, uh, were excluded from obligations under the treaty. Those are the developing or sometimes called the global south countries. Uh, those uh, countries were, ex- their economies were expanding much faster uh, than the economies, the older economies of the US, Europe, and Japan, for instance. And as a result, there was a feeling in some quarters that there was an imbalance in terms of those countries' economies getting advantage in producing certain products, which would the production which would cause a lot of emissions while the U.S., for instance, would be under restraints of not being able to emit so much and therefore the cost of production of some products would become too expensive and they would ironically get offshored, that is, into production would move to China where there was no restriction on emissions. And that was kind of a self-defeating aspect of the treaty of the Kyoto Protocol called leakage. Um, the, the, uh, that combined with just an unwillingness in some quarters to recognize the seriousness of the problem or to pay any cost at all for restraining it led the U.S. under President George W. Bush to pull out of the Kyoto Pro- Protocol, kind of ironic since his father, George H.W. Bush, who had a one-term presidency, had signed the original framework convention of which the Kyoto Protocol was a child, you might say. So after that, there was a period of disarray among countries because if the non-binding framework convention didn't produce much progress, and if the Kyoto Protocol didn't engage either the China by design or the U.S. uh, as a result of China's, partly as a result of China's non-engagement, what else could we do? And to move forward uh, quickly, there were a lot of meetings and international treaty negotiations, but nothing substantial was agreed on until uh, during the Obama presidency, um, a meeting or a negotiating session in Copenhagen that the president himself attended along with other heads of state led to a feeling that we just have to rip up much of this and start again. And that in turn led to the negotiation in 2015 of the Paris Agreement, which has a completely different structure than the Kyoto Protocol in that countries aren't required to sign on a dotted line for a specific commitment to reduce their emissions, but instead came to Paris with offers. That is, they say, this is how much we think we can uh, reasonably do over the next five years uh, in terms of emissions reduction, particularly of carbon dioxide. Uh, this is how we'll do it. And we will return uh, to tell you what our progress is over the next few years. And you other countries can criticize us. And that process called naming and shaming or pledge and review is the enforcement mechanism in the Paris Agreement. So instead of uh, how much we're going to, re- the U.S. is going to reduce its emissions being a subject of negotiation between the U.S. and China, say, uh, the U.S. makes an offer. And then if it lives up to that offer, uh, it might get uh, quite a bit of international kudos, particularly if the offer represented a strong effort. If it made either a, a weak offer or it 
lived or didn't live up to either a strong or a weak offer, other countries would criticize it heavily. And to some degree, there is traction for that kind of enforcement. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't even work most of the time, but sometimes it works. And it was kind of the only option left for countries because they weren't convinced in the end that they really could reduce emissions at a reasonable cost. But the big, and so that was one step forward was this uh, agreement to not politically negotiate targets, but would let countries make their own proposals. And the second was that China and the other substantial developing countries like India were not excluded this time. They also were required by the Paris Agreement to make offers, to make, put down plans, and to subject themselves to criticism, depending on how they performed. Those are the key, those are the key elements of the Paris Agreement. And in the meantime, the price of alternative energy, solar energy, wind energy, has crashed. There's been such technological progress and such increase in demand that uh, there are economies of scale so that it is now cheaper to generate energy with wind power or solar power in many places than it is to burn coal, oil, or even natural gas, the price of which is itself quite cheap, uh, which were the previous ways of, for instance, producing electricity. So we're in the middle of a uh, of an energy revolution, which may in the end actually make be the biggest thing which makes the Paris Agreement work out. So that's the basic framework. It's not perfect. There's nothing which actually forces a country to do anything except international social pressure. Well, thank you so much for that, uh, you know, informative overview of the whole history of this problem and the uh, efforts to try to figure out how to get it wrestled to the ground. Um, I mean, what would you say you sort of speak optimistically about the, uh, you know, what's happening in the, on the energy front and how much of a difference that could make? Um, what, what other obstacle, I mean, what, what difference did it make that the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Accord? And what difference does it make that they're back in, you know, back in the game? Um, and more generally, you know, what do you see as kind of the, the greatest difficulties in achieving the, maybe you could lay out the, you know, specific markers and aims that the Paris Accord sets out and sure. talk, talk about, you know, what stands in the way. Okay. Um, the, I want to say that one specific of the Paris Accord, which I didn't go into in my first answer, where I was talking about the next three to five years, for instance, is that there's a long-term objective. And this was new. There was a long-term objective in the Framework Convention signed, as I said, the Rio Summit in 1992. But uh, it, it was just the idea of a long-term obje objective. No, There was no, well, how warm could, should we let the Earth get? What's the number? Uh, one, two, three, four, five degrees uh, above uh, what it was before we started mucking around with the atmosphere. What? How warm is too warm? And a lot of science has been done in the meantime. And we now have a pretty good picture of how warm is too warm. And the Paris agreements actually specify a level, which was first talked about in uh, 2009 in the Copenhagen phase of the negotiations. Uh, but in Paris, it was uh, uh, designated with higher level of specification in that it's now an obligation of countries, again, not exactly enforceable, but still an obligation that the ultimate warming uh, be limited limited to well below two degrees, this is the language of the Paris Agreement, well below 
uh, two degrees above what it was in pre-industrial times, which is generally taken to be the late 19th century, although strictly speaking, there was already some industrial carbon dioxide emission by then. Uh, and uh, with a uh, best efforts to reach an even lower warming of about one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. And I want to put that in context. Those are degrees Celsius. You can about double them to get the degrees Fahrenheit, uh, if you'd like. Um, it's already more than one degree Celsius now warmer than in pre-industrial times. And that means nearly two degrees Fahrenheit warmer. So that one degree is uh, unfortunately uncomfortably close to that one and a half degree target in the Paris Agreement. And it, it, it will be very hard. I, I you know, if, if I'm still around to see the day, I will be shocked, actually, if we actually make a one and a half degree limit. Two degrees, two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial, where we've already eaten up more than a, a degree, maybe. The possibility remains there. Scientists basically laid out a framework which may, which indicated that that level of warming above two degrees is pretty clearly dangerous. That is, there's a concatenation of risk which increases above around one and a half or two degrees. Things happening like destabilization of parts of the Antarctic ice sheet, leading eventually to a very large sea level rise, threatening coastal civilization as we know it. Uh, big changes in agriculture, particularly in the developing countries, but also in countries like the United States, which would deprive some countries of their ability to generate enough food internally that currently have that ability and in general raise prices of the basic cereal grains, making it in some cases difficult for any populations to get adequate nutrition and other, uh, other consequences like more and more of the earth being simply too hot during the warm season for outdoor activity on many days, where outdoor activity could just mean kids running around and playing soccer, for instance. And certainly mean, it would mean workers in the agricultural business or the construction business would just have a very difficult time. And there would be more and more days where if they worked, they'd be taking their life in their own hands. So um, that's what day climate danger is. That's what we're looking at if we don't keep the warming down below this two degree limit. And that's the ultimate objective of the Paris Accord. Now there are, there are obstacles to getting there, as you, as you mentioned. Probably the chief obstacle, as I said originally, is no country is really obliged to do anything. There is no penalty except international disdain if countries don't do what they say they're going to do, or if what they say they're going to do, what country X China says it's going to do, what the U.S. says it's going to do, what Japan says, what the EU says. If that doesn't add up to avoiding two degrees, you know, that means there's just enough willpower. There's just not enough willpower on the parts of those countries. But there are also some very specific problems with the uh, implementation of the Paris Agreement, which are obstacles to getting where we need to go. Specifically, there's something called transparency. What that means is that countries have to, in a reliable, checkable, confirmable way, report their emissions so other countries can see what they're actually getting done. If we can't see what China's getting done, can we trust them? If the EU can't see 
what the U.S. is getting done? How can they trust us that they were actually implementing what we say we are? One day we'll be able to see all this from satellites and it won't matter. We'll be spying on every country and we'll be seeing what their missions are, but we're not quite there yet with that ability. So we have to trust the, the monitoring, verification and reporting of, of countries that we know aren't entirely transparent, like China, for instance. Uh, there are provisions in the Paris Accord which need to be specified uh, by further negotiation among the parties, which have will have rules for how transparency is supposed to be carried out. But they're not there yet. And we know that with the U.S. having stepped out of the Paris Accord for four years and not really paying much attention, the big actor left is China. And, chi- and there's no big counterweight to China. And China is, by practice, not in favor of transparency. So one of the first things that's happened is four years lost developing rules, which means four years lost globally in terms of really moving toward enough emissions reduction. So we have a chance to meet that uh, Paris goal of two degrees or one and a half degree limitation on warming. Now that the U.S. is coming back in, it can provide a counterweight to China's uh, lack of interest in transparency and perhaps a reasonable set of rules could be negotiated. That might sound like inside baseball, but if it's not done properly, the Paris Accord will be worthless. Right. So another issue that has beset the discussion about climate change is the question really basically of whether or not there's a scientific consensus about this problem. And I mean, you have, you know, serious training in science, if I recall correctly, it's basically in chemistry. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what it means to have a scientific consensus on an issue like this. I mean, you know, we're facing it in a more direct way, perhaps right now around the issue of vaccines and whether they're safe and whether they haven't been rushed uh, to serve some political end. Um, but, you know, as far as I can see, the, the usual protocols of double-blind clinical trials and all that kind of thing has been have been observed as they need to be. And, you know, some corners have been cut, but not really in terms of measuring safety. And that, I think, is the scientific consensus on this issue. But, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, there are doubters, or I see on the internet people saying this is not safe. I mean, I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what, what, it means, as I say, to have a scientific consensus. And what is that scientific consensus on climate change? Sure. Um, Well, you know, there are many mechanisms to get scientists together to tell governments what they think the state of affairs are with respect to many different problems. There's COVID with the CDC playing an important role on climate change, it's the uh, at the international level, it's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which has an ongoing process of review and evaluation of the scientific information that's in the scientific literature to be able to then state in relatively straightforward language what scientists understand will be the outcome of emissions at, at a particular level and why the climate system operates that way. In the U.S., we have the National Academy of Sciences, which every year produces hundreds of reports on different aspects of a whole variety of problems for the government, ranging from things that are matters of national defense to 
uh, issues that are matters uh, relate more specifically to scientific uh, research generally and the ability of technology to improve the economy to a, pro- a series of environmental problems, including climate change. And so all of these con- inter- consensuses uh, uh, are operating at once, all these institutions which do consent, look for scientific consensus. And the process, while it differs from place to place, is more or less uh, has certain similarities, namely, uh, in some cases, dozens, in some cases, hundreds, in some cases, thousands, as in the case of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of experts get together in subgroups where you have experts who know a lot about particular aspects of the problem, like how clouds form and how the warming of the atmosphere will cause changes in cloudiness and precipitation, or why uh, weather patterns get stagnant and therefore we get persistent heat waves, or why the uh, Antarctic ice sheet is disintegrating, contributing to sea level rise. And I, I've been involved in those, uh, in those, uh, efforts, those consensus efforts to reach consensus since the early days of the IPCC, uh, back in 1990. And what happens is the scientists usually, uh, for free, that is, they don't get paid for this, uh, will spend hours, days, months, years, trying to hone down the knowledge in the vast scientific literature where there are thousands of papers produced every year with new research findings that need to be incorporated because the science on a problem like climate change is evolving very quickly. And so it's a, it's a hard job just to read any significant amount of that literature. And the scientists then deliberate over the, the papers that they've read and say, well, what, what did you think of this paper? What did you think of this paper? And they meet, you know, in the old days where there were physical meetings not that long ago. Now it's done over uh, Zoom or something like that. And they try to reach agreement on some key points. And though, and ultimately, they're trying to answer questions that the policymakers themselves, who are by and large not scientists, are answer, asking the scientists because the answer to those questions will be key to making policy. For instance, how much will sea level rise if the Antarctic ice sheet uh, disintegrates by a certain amount over the next 50 or 75 or 100 years? How fast will warming occur? How soon will we get too much drying so it won't be possible uh, to uh, grow certain crops in certain areas because it's too expensive to irrigate? Those are the kinds of questions the scientists try to deliberate and reach a consensus on. And it has worked to the extent that scientists have reached a consensus, that is, agreement, that certain things about the climate problem are known with high, a high degree of certainty. Things like as uh, carbon dioxide has a very long lifetime in the atmosphere, so that some of the carbon dioxide, maybe more than a third that we emit today, will still be around hundreds of e- and even a thousand years from now, unless we find some artificial way to pull it out of the atmosphere. That, that means a lot of the climate change we're building in today is irreversible. Uh, point, uh, questions like 
uh, well, uh, how much do we have to lower emissions to bring the atmosphere back into balance and to stop the warming? Well, there, there is a consensus that unless emissions of from uh, fossil fuel combustion and deforestation and other activities that produce carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are essentially eliminated by around mid-century, uh, that we will have no chance of getting to uh, one and a half degrees. And unless they're eliminated by around 2070, we have no chance of getting to two degrees. And there's always an uncertainty attached to these statements. You wouldn't say exactly zero at exactly 2050. You'd say zero plus or minus a certain amount because scientists are always respectful of uncertainty. And in fact, part of the deal of being a good uh, member of one of these uh, bodies is that you're willing to say what the uncertainties in any statement you make are, and you're willing to com uh, transmit that to policymakers because they have to convert what you're saying into an assessment, not just of what they should do, but what the the chances are that what they will do and ask the public to do might not work or will work much better than they thought. That's what uncertainty is about. Um, so it's a complicated job. But it turns out that we know a lot about the key features of the climate problem. Just to give you one specific, uh, we now believe that if we did nothing to control carbon dioxide and just let it grow, that sometime um, late in the century, that we would have a warming that would be somewhere between about two degrees and five degrees Celsius warmer than, uh, uh, than today. And that um, that warming uh, is uh, unique in the whole history of civilization. And if you even go back to an era where there were large natural climate changes, which occurred more slowly uh, due to the earth moving in and out of ice ages, you saw warmings uh, in going from an ice age to the current type of, of epoch, uh, which weren't any bigger than the five degrees. So these are earth shattering uh, changes that would remake the surface of the earth and certainly nowhere in the history of civilization, which is only 10,000 years old, have we ever seen anything like that? And that's part of the consensus too, because scientists, certain, certain subset of scientists called paleoclimatologists are able to look at fossil data and similar things and tell us what earth's old climates used to be. And from that, we can figure out, well, how fast did it happen? And is this much faster? Yeah, it's going to happen much faster than, than a global, any global change in the past. So that's what consensus is for. It has to be presented in the language of confidence. These are things we're confident about. These are things we're less confident about. These are things that are, you know, completely unknown and we can't really say what's going to happen. And one of those, for instance, uh, you know, is you know, how fast will the ice sheets decay, the ice sheet in Greenland and Antarctic, and will sea level uh, rise if you go past the end of the century into the 22nd century? How much sea level rise will we get? Well, there's just too much unknown about that to have a lot of confidence in it. But we know enough about sea level rise over the next 30 to 40 years to be able to make sensible policies, both for reducing the mission, emissions and defending the coast at the same time. That later statement is a judgment policymakers have to make. What the science tells you is, yeah, the uncertainty in sea level rise for 2050, it's not all that much. Uh, and they'll give it and they give a number. So that's what the consensus process is about. So again, scientists do it for free. And 
Uh, they do it because they think they have a social obligation to try to give policymakers the information they need. All that being said, you know very well by having lived through the COVID experience that uh, while policymakers in general uh, are used to dealing with scientists, know how to handle scientific information from the consensus, no matter what the field is, and know how to use that to make judgments about policy, because that's what we pay them to do. Uh, the general public uh, has a rather lesser understanding of the value of the information and is confused when there is sometimes isn't a scientific consensus on something. Like in the early days of COVID, there was confusion over whether to wear masks or not. And different scientists were telling us different things. But as we learn more about the pandemic and the nature of the virus and how it's transmitted, a scientific consensus uh, gelled very quickly that masks were a key to defending ourselves. Well, that kind of evolution of science is extremely confusing to the public and, in fact, is exploited by people who don't want anything done about, for instance, the climate problem. Anytime there's a disagreement, you'll see people, many of whom uh, have uh, motivations, not all of them, but some of them have motivations which aren't particularly pretty. That is, uh, they have a political bias or they uh, you know, they re uh, receive uh, some level of support from uh, industries that would be affected by regulation. Um, they, they go, so some people go about trying to confuse the public on this issue. And unfortunately, a few of those people are also scientists. Uh, so being able to tell who's a real expert and who isn't, who's giving their, uh, you know, an unbiased judgment as best they can be unbiased and who has a very specific bias that they're exploiting with the intention of confusing the public. Those are issues with COVID. Those are issues with climate change, too. Well, I mean, this is indeed, you know, precisely where I wanted to go. And I think the parallels are, in fact, quite striking. And the mask case in the COVID example is, of course, exactly on point. Um, and it raises the question, I mean, uh, insofar as some people are less familiar with the nature and routines of science and the fact that uncertainty is always part of the picture to a greater or lesser degree, um, you know, how do you communicate these, uh, these issues or the findings of scientific research, which are, as you say, never, you know, 100% certain? Um, I think that's been you know, a major kind of uh, difficulty in our efforts to meet the COVID challenge. And arguably, it's also been the, the case with regard to climate change, that the communication has been, you know, confused. It's also complicated by social media, where everybody's an expert, it seems. And so I wonder how you would, uh, you know, address that question, the question of how the scientific consensus is conveyed and communicated and how it can be made, you know, understandable to people who don't spend their days thinking about uncertainty. Yeah, that's a tough question. I spent a lot of my life uh, trying to communicate science. I think it, it, it goes without saying that it's not easy. And uh, uh, certain people have a, a knack uh, for being able to do it well and others are uh, do not and are, and in fact, feel uncomfortable. Many scientists feel uncomfortable uh, trying to speak about their science in, in the vernacular. And that's all gets to this question of uncertainty where it becomes, how do you express something to people which you think uh, has a, 
you know, a 75, 80% chance of happening, but where, you know, the opposite also has some smaller, much smaller chance of happening. How do you get them to understand that? It's not easy. It's not easy with climate change. It isn't easy with COVID. It, 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 it isn't easy with anything. But the interesting thing is decision makers and government have to deal with this all the time. And yet they're able to do it. And they're able to convince people that there's something there to believe in. And the way it worked or used to work in the no, in a normal world, although there was always some controversy, was that there were people who were trusted in society to essentially translate these messages uh, to the general public in a way which would bring the public along. Uh, and that process worked well historically with some things. It never worked perfectly. And sometimes these so-called opinion leaders or uh, or uh, intermediaries uh, that call different things and they act in different ways at different times um, themselves made mistakes or were biased and led people in a wrong direction. That can happen. But in general, when science wasn't a political football, um, it was easier for the scientific community itself to develop leaders that would engender trust and uh, where, where, at least among policymakers, to some degree among the general public, and where they, it would be easier to sort of follow the conclusions of what they said the science meant. Uh, and that's just become harder because now if you're a scientist who espouses uh, the importance of climate change based on certain facts. Uh, people tend to ignore the facts and might look first at, well, what, you know, there's something suspicious about that. Uh, that doesn't fit my general worldview. I'm just going to reject it. Or even, you know, that scientist must be, uh, you know, a, a liberal, a progressive, or a communist, you know, yet worse. Uh, if they believe in in uh, climate change, so I don't believe their information because it must be that it's because they're progressive rather than they actually have some scientific evidence, and that's the way temporarily I hope uh, life has turned out. The public is very divided uh, among a whole lot of things, uh, across a whole lot of uh, of issues, and we see in COVID. This happened with the mask uh, 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 wars, you might say, where certain people wouldn't wear masks because they were followers of the president, Donald Trump, the then president. And he wasn't he himself was uh, negative to uh, wishy washy on whether masks were a good thing. And therefore, they realigned their beliefs in the, the science to be consistent with what Trump said. And they decided to disbelieve the part of the science that said we ought to be wearing masks. Same thing on climate change. Uh, people who either, uh, uh, some people I want to say disagree with the science um, uh, for reasons that might have to do with the fact that they actually took a hard look at it. They know that there are uncertainties and they have a different view of what ought to be done in the face of those uncertainties. And that's legitimate. But I don't think, that, you know, that that probably makes up, you know, 2% of the skeptics. Most of them um, have probably gone about the business of either uh, trying to realign, it's called motivated reasoning, realign this, the, their belief in science with their uh, pre-existing political beliefs uh, or other culture, cultural dispositions, or they're just following the wrong people, people who themselves have 
uh, rejected science for narrow reasons that are either self-interest, that is, maybe they own too much stock in oil companies, or uh, maybe uh, the broader political issues, that is, they know that solving this problem will require government action, worse yet, international action, and they don't like the government, they don't like regulation, and they surely don't like uh, getting into agreements with other governments. And those people, you're not going to convince no matter what, because self-interest is really piled up against them wanting to see anything done with climate change, and they're not willing to admit it that it's a matter of self-interest. Uh, and then there are the vast number of people in the middle who are just trying to figure out who to believe and where the voices of science, which used to be strong, are drowned out by all this political uh, uh, warfare. So that ha- that has happened o- on COVID. We've struggled through it. Uh, not clear that it's not. It didn't already uh, ex- extort a lot of damage. You know, a, a lot of the four hundred thousand people in the U.S. who died from COVID. Probably a lot of them would, would have been alive if there had been a clear message from the beginning about what the science said and didn't say. Um, and as I said at the beginning, some of the science might have been unclear, but uh, very quickly that all got resolved and still we had the mask war going on. And same thing on climate change. There are people who are trying to fight now a rear guard action on the science of climate change. But the good news is that all the surveys of public opinion indicate that the public in general believes the consensus. They believe that Earth is warming. They believe that the warming is by and large due to the buildup of greenhouse gases. They understand that unless we reduce the greenhouse gases sharply, warming is simply going to continue to uh, progress and cause damages. And they the bottom line is they want to see the problem dealt with. So I, I don't want to say that the science wars are behind us. I do want to say that despite this horribly polarized uh, time that we live in, the message from science has gotten through. Certain political leaders have provided the necessary leadership. We see a different attitude, of course, on the part of President Biden than on the part of President Trump. And that over over time, this is going to lead us in the direction of actually grappling with the problem. The difficulty is we don't have a lot of time left to grapple with it firmly enough so we avoid this warming greater than two degrees. It does seem as though things have come to a very difficult pass. So I guess I want to ask you uh, in conclusion to say a little bit about what you think is the most important thing that people need to know about climate change that you haven't said already. Um, and, you know, how could that best be communicated to them? Uh, I, you know, I think the simplest thing that people have to understand is uh just be the problem isn't going to go away and it's not going to go away easily it's not like other types of air pollution where if you shut off all the factories pollutants like sulfur dioxide would be out of the atmosphere uh within a few weeks that isn't going to happen with carbon dioxide as i said before we're stuck with a certain burden of carbon dioxide unless progress is made on removing it artificially from the atmosphere and therefore we're stuck with a certain level of abnormal warming uh, for a long, long, long time. This is irreversible in, to that extent. Um, number two, that doesn't matter whether the carbon dioxide is emitted here or in France or in Indonesia or in China or Japan, it has the same effect on the climate. So countries have to pitch in and do this together. 
Uh, they need to also understand that a, to, to, we could make a lot of progress by just implementing technologies we already have. As I said at the top, the price of solar energy and wind energy has come way down. It, it's really uh, economically efficient to start implementing those sources as quickly as possible. And yet, in certain states, there are regulatory barriers let, to, in doing so because fossil fuel is preferred by the state government for some reason that has to do with politics. Let's get rid of those barriers. Let's uh, strengthen the incentives and make, make it quicker for the, this energy transition to happen uh, to the newer, cleaner sources of energy. Uh, let's not let money from the industries that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels or produce fossil fuels filter, continue to filter into politics and obstruct the will of the people on this issue, which, as I said, has grown over time into being a broad political consensus that we have to cut these emissions and cut them fast. So, you know, at the end of the day, like everything else, these problems are only solved if the political system solve them. The scientists can't solve them. We know enough to act has been a conclusion of most policymakers worldwide for a long time. Let's clear away those obstacles. Let's make it easier for politicians to act rather than harder. Let's let our opinions be heard. For sure, let's vote on these issues, which started to happen in the last election. And let's make sure that this problem, the climate problem and solving it remains a top political priority in this country. At the same time, the science is our eyes. We need to keep our eyes open. The only way that's going to work is if we keep supporting good, solid, basic research in this country. The U.S. has always been the leader in scientific research on this problem. That's the strong base of knowledge we need to do the sensible thing as this evolves over the coming decades. Let's keep that capacity in place. Well, that sounds like the right answer to me, certainly. Uh, thank you so much to Professor Michael Oppenheimer for sharing his insights about the future of efforts to address climate change and the science behind it. Uh, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I also want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance. Please subscribe to International Horizons on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud, and leave us a review. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons.